Welcome to the 48th reading of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We continue this reading with Book 4, Chapter 14, Section 8. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 8. But Philip, they say, replied to the eunuch who asked to be baptized, quote, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest, unquote. Acts 8, verse 37. What room is there for a confirmation of baptism when faith fills the whole heart? I, in my turn, ask them, Do they not feel that a good part of their heart is void of faith? Do they not perceive new additions to it every day? There was one who boasted that he grew old while learning. Thrice miserable, then, are we Christians if we grow old without making progress, we whose faith ought to advance through every period of life until it grow up into a perfect man. Ephesians 4, verse 13. In this passage, therefore, to believe with the whole heart is not to believe Christ perfectly, but only to embrace him sincerely with heart and soul, not to be filled with him, but with ardent affection to hunger and thirst and sigh after him. It is usual in Scripture to say that a thing is done with the whole heart when it is done sincerely and cordially. Of this description are the following passages. Quote, With my whole heart have I sought thee. Unquote. Psalm 119, verse 10. Quote, I will confess unto thee with my whole heart, unquote, etc. In like manner, when the fraudulent and deceitful are rebuked, it is said, quote, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak, unquote. Psalm 12, verse 2. The objectors next add, quote, if faith is increased by means of the sacraments, the Holy Spirit is given in vain, saying it is his office to begin, sustain, and consummate our faith, unquote. I admit, indeed, that faith is the proper and entire work of the Holy Spirit, enlightened by whom we recognize God and the treasures of his grace, and without whose illumination our mind is so blind that it can see nothing so stupid that it has no relish for spiritual things. But for the one divine blessing which they proclaim, we count three. For, first, the Lord teaches and trains us by his word. Next, he confirms us by his sacraments. Lastly, he illumines our mind by the light of his Holy Spirit and opens up an entrance into our hearts for his word and sacraments, which would otherwise only strike our ears and fall upon our sight, but by no means affect us inwardly. Section 9. Wherefore, with regard to the increase and confirmation of faith, I would remind the reader, though I think I have already expressed it in unambiguous terms, that in assigning this office to the sacraments, it is not as if I thought that there is a kind of secret efficacy perpetually inherent in them, by which they can of themselves promote or strengthen faith, but because our Lord has instituted them for the express purpose of helping to establish and increase our faith. 
The sacraments duly perform their office only when accompanied by the Spirit, the internal master, whose energy alone penetrates the heart, stirs up the affections, and procures access for the sacraments into our souls. If he is wanting, the sacraments can avail us no more than the sun shining on the eyeballs of the blind, or sounds uttered in the ears of the deaf. Wherefore, in distributing between the Spirit and the sacraments, I ascribe the whole energy to him, and leave only a ministry to them. This ministry, without the agency of the Spirit, is empty and frivolous. But when he acts within and exerts his power, it is replete with energy. It is now clear in what way, according to this view, a pious mind is confirmed in faith by means of the sacraments, these, in the same way in which the light of the sun is seen by the eye and the sound of the voice heard by the ear, the former of which would not be at all affected by the light unless it had a pupil in which the light might fall, nor are the latter reached by any sound, however loud, were it not naturally adapted for hearing. But if it is true, as has been explained, that in the eye it is the power of vision which enables it to see the light, and in the ear the power of hearing which enables it to perceive the voice, and that in our hearts it is the work of the Holy Spirit to commence, maintain, cherish, and establish faith, then it follows both that the sacraments do not avail one iota without the energy of the Holy Spirit, and that yet in hearts previously taught by that preceptor, there is nothing to prevent the sacraments from strengthening and increasing faith. There is only this difference, that the faculty of seeing and hearing is naturally implanted in the eye and ear, whereas Christ acts in our minds above the measure of nature by special grace. Section 10. In this way also we dispose of certain objections by which some anxious minds are annoyed. If we ascribe either an increase or confirmation of faith to creatures, injustice is done to the Spirit of God, who alone ought to be regarded as its author. But we do not rob him of the merit of confirming and increasing faith. Nay, rather we maintain that that which confirms and increases faith is nothing else than the preparing of our minds by his internal illumination to receive that confirmation which is set forth by the sacraments. But if the subject is still obscure, it will be made plain by the following similitude. Were you to begin to persuade a person by word to do something, you would think of all the arguments by which he may be brought over to your view and in a manner compelled to serve your purpose. But nothing is gained if the individual himself possess not a clear and acute judgment by which he may be able to weigh the value of your arguments. If, moreover, he is not of a docile disposition and ready to listen to doctrine, if, in fine, he has no such idea of your faith and prudence as in a manner to prejudice him in your favor and secure his assent, for there are many obstinate spirits who are not to be bent by any arguments, and where faith is suspected or authority contemned, little progress is made even with the docile. On the other hand, when opposite feelings exist, the result will be that the person whose interests you are consulting will acquiesce in the very counsels which he would otherwise have derided. The same work is performed in us by the Spirit, that the word may not fall upon our ear, or the sacraments be presented to our eye in vain. He shows that it is God who there speaks to us, softens our obdurate heart, and frames them to the obedience which is due to his word. In short, transmits those external words and sacraments from the ear to the soul. Both word and sacraments, therefore, confirm our faith, bringing under view the kind intentions of our Heavenly Father and the knowledge of which the whole assurance of our faith depends and by which its strength is increased. And the Spirit also confirms our faith when, by engraving that assurance on our minds, he renders it effectual. Meanwhile, it is easy for the Father of lights, in like manner as he illumines the bodily eye by the rays of the sun, 
to illumine our minds by the sacraments, as by a kind of intermediate brightness. Section 11. This property our Lord showed to belong to the external word, when in the parable he compared it to seed. Matthew 13, verse 4, and Luke 8, verse 15. For as the seed, when it falls on a deserted and neglected part of the field, can do nothing but die, but when thrown into ground properly labored and cultivated will yield a hundredfold. So the word of God, when addressed to any stubborn spirit, will remain without fruit as if thrown upon the barren waste, but when it meets with a soul which the hand of the heavenly spirit has subdued, will be most fruitful. But if the case of the seed and of the word is the same, and from the seed corn can grow and increase and attain to maturity, why may not faith also take its beginning, increase, and completion from the word? Both things are admirably explained by Paul in different passages. For when he would remind the Corinthians how God had given effect to his labors, he boasts that he possessed the ministry of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4, just as if his preaching were inseparably connected with the power of the Holy Spirit in inwardly enlightening the mind and stimulating it. But in another passage, when he would remind them what the power of the word is in itself when preached by man, he compares ministers to husbandmen who, after they have expended labor and industry in cultivating the ground, have nothing more that they can do. For what would plowing and sowing and watering avail, unless that which was sown should, by the kindness of heaven, vegetate? Wherefore he concludes that he that planteth and he that watereth is nothing, but that the whole is to be ascribed to God, who alone gives the increase. The apostles therefore exert the power of the Spirit in their preaching, inasmuch as God uses them as instruments which he has ordained for the unfolding of his spiritual grace. Still, however, we must not lose sight of the distinction, but remember what man is able of himself to do, and what is peculiar to God. Section 12. The sacraments are confirmations of our faith in such a sense that the Lord sometimes, when he sees me to withdraw our assurance of the things which he had promised in the sacraments, takes away the sacraments themselves. When he deprives Adam of the gift of immortality and expels him from the garden, Quote, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever, unquote. Genesis 3, verse 22. What is this we hear? Could that fruit have restored Adam to the immortality from which he had already fallen? By no means. It is just as if he had said, lest he indulge in vain confidence if allowed to retain the symbol of my promise, let that be withdrawn which might give him some hope of immortality. On this ground, when the Apostle urges the Ephesians to remember that they, quote, were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, unquote, Ephesians 2, verse 12, he says that they were not partakers of circumcision. He thus intimates metonomically that all were excluded from the promise who had not received the badge of the promise. To the other objection, these, that when so much power is attributed to creatures, the glory of God is bestowed upon them and thereby impaired, it is obvious to reply that we attribute no power to the creatures. All we say is that God uses the means and instruments which he sees to be expedient, in order that all things may be subservient to his glory, he being the Lord and disposer of all. Therefore, as by bread and other elements he feeds our bodies, as by the sun he illumines, and by fire gives warmth to the world, and yet bread, sun, and fire are nothing, save inasmuch as they are instruments under which he dispenses his blessings to us. So, in like manner, he spiritually nourishes our faith by means of the sacraments, whose only office is to make his promises visible to our eye, or rather, to be pledges of his promises. 
and as it is our duty in regard to the other creatures which the divine liberality and kindness has destined for our use, and by whose instrumentality he bestows the gifts of his goodness upon us, to put no confidence in them, nor to admire and extol them as the causes of our mercy, so neither ought our confidence to be fixed on the sacraments, nor ought the glory of God to be transferred to them, but passing beyond them all, our faith and confession should rise to him who is the author of the sacraments and of all things. Section 13. There is nothing in the argument which some found on the very term sacrament. This term, they say, while it has many significations in approved authors, has only one which is applicable to signs, namely, when it is used for the formal oath which the soldier gives to his commander on entering the service, whereas by that military oath recruits by themselves to be faithful to their commander and make profession of military service, so by our signs we acknowledge Christ to be our commander and declare that we serve under his standard. They add similitudes in order to make the matter more clear. As the toga distinguished the Romans from the Greeks who wore the pallium, and as the different orders of Romans were distinguished from each other by their peculiar insignia, for example, the senatorial from the equestrian by purple and crescent shoes, and the equestrian from the plebeian by ring, so we wear our symbols to distinguish us from the profane. But it is sufficiently clear from what has been said above that the ancients, in giving the name of the sacraments to signs, had not at all attended to the use of the term by Latin writers, but had, for the sake of convenience, given it this new signification as a means of simply expressing sacred signs. But were we to argue more subtly, we might say that they seem to have given the term this signification in a manner analogous to that in which they employ the term faith in the sense in which it is now used. For while faith is truth in performing promises, they have used it for the certainty or firm persuasion which is had of the truth. In this way, while a sacrament is the act of the soldier when he vows obedience to his commander, they made it the act by which the commander admits soldiers to the ranks. For in the sacraments the Lord promises that he will be our God, and we that we will be his people. But we omit such subtleties, since I think I have shown by arguments abundantly plain that all which ancient writers intended was to intimate that sacraments are the signs of sacred and spiritual things. The similitudes which are drawn from external objects, see chapter 15, section 1, we indeed admit, but we prove not that that which is a secondary thing in sacraments is by them made the first and indeed the only thing. The first thing is that they may contribute to our faith in God, the secondary that they may attest our confession before men. These similitudes are applicable to the secondary reason. Let it therefore remain a fixed point that mysteries would be frigid, as has been seen, were they not helps to our faith and adjuncts annexed to doctrine for the same end and purpose. Section 14. On the other hand, it is to be observed that as these objectors impair the force and altogether overthrow the use of the sacraments, so there are others who ascribe to the sacraments a kind of secret virtue which is nowhere said to have been implanted in them by God. By this error, the more simple and unwary are perilously deceived, while they are taught the secret gifts of God where they cannot possibly be found and are insensibly withdrawn from God, so as to embrace instead of his truth mere vanity. For the schools of the sophists have taught with general consent that the sacraments of the new law, in other words, those now in use in the Christian church, justify and confer grace, provided only that we do not interpose the obstacle of mortal sin. It is impossible to describe how fatal and pestilential this sentiment is, and the more so that for many ages it has, to the great loss of the church, prevailed over a considerable part of the world. It is plainly of the devil. For first, in promising a righteousness without faith, it drives souls headlong on destruction. 
Secondly, in deriving a cause of righteousness from the sacraments, it entangles miserable minds already of their own accord too much inclined to the earth in a superstitious idea which makes them acquiesce in the spectacle of a corporeal object rather than in God himself. I wish we had not such experience of both evils as to make it altogether unnecessary to give a lengthened proof of them, for what is a sacrament received without faith but most certain destruction to the church? For, seeing that nothing is to be expected beyond the promise, and the promise no less denounces wrath to the unbeliever than offers grace to the believer, it is an error to suppose that anything more is conferred by the sacraments than is offered by the word of God and obtained by true faith. From this another thing follows, these, that assurance of salvation does not depend on participation in the sacraments, as if justification consisted in it. This, which is treasured up in Christ alone, we know to be communicated not less by the preaching of the gospel than by the seal of the sacrament, and may be completely enjoyed without this seal. So true is it, as Augustine declares, that there may be invisible sanctification without a visible sign, and on the other hand, a visible sign without true sanctification. For, as he elsewhere says, quote, men put on Christ, sometimes to the extent of partaking in the sacrament, and sometimes to the extent of holiness of life, unquote. The former may be common to the good and the bad. The latter is peculiar to the good. Section 15. Hence the distinction, if properly understood, repeatedly made by Augustine between the sacrament and the matter of the sacrament. For he does not mean merely that the figure and truth are therein contained, but that they do not so cohere as not to be separable, and that in this connection it is always necessary to distinguish the thing from the sign, so as not to transfer to the one what belongs to the other. Augustine speaks of the separation when he says that in the elect alone the sacraments accomplish what they represent. Again, when speaking of the Jews, he says, quote, Though the sacraments were common to all, the grace was not common, yet grace is the virtue of the sacraments. Thus, too, the labor of regeneration is now common to all, but the grace by which the members of Christ are regenerated with their head is not common to all. Unquote. Again, in another place, speaking of the Lord's Supper, he says, Quote, we also this day receive visible food, but the sacrament is one thing, the virtue of the sacrament another. Why is it that many partake of the altar and die, and die by partaking? For even the cup of the Lord was poisoned to Judas, not because he received what was evil, but being wicked, he wickedly received what was good. Unquote. A little after, he says, quote, The sacrament of this thing, that is, of the unity of the body and blood of Christ, is in some places prepared every day, and others at certain intervals at the Lord's table, which is partaken by some unto life, by others unto destruction. But the thing itself, of which there is a sacrament, is life to all, and destruction to none who partake of it. Unquote. Some time before he had said, quote, He who may have eaten shall not die, but he must be one who attains to the virtue of the sacrament, not to the visible sacrament, who eats inwardly, not outwardly who eats with the heart and not with the teeth, unquote. Here you are uniformly told that a sacrament is so separated from the reality by the unworthiness of the partaker that nothing remains but an empty and useless figure. Now, in order that you may have not a sign devoid of truth, but the thing with the sign, the word which is included in it, must be apprehended by faith. Thus, insofar as by means of the sacrament you will profit in the communion of Christ, will you derive advantage from them. Section 16. If this is obscure from brevity, I will explain it more at length. I say that Christ is the matter, or, if you rather choose it, the substance of all the sacraments, as in him they have their whole solidity, and out of him promise nothing. 
Hence, the less toleration is due to the error of Peter Lombard, who distinctly makes them causes of the righteousness and salvation of which they are parts, bidding adieu to all other causes of righteousness which the wit of man devises, our duty is to hold by this only. Insofar, therefore, as we are assisted by their instrumentality in cherishing, confirming, and increasing the true knowledge of Christ, so as both to possess him more fully and enjoy him in all his richness, so far are they effectual in regard to us. This is the case when that which is there offered is received by us in true faith. Therefore, you will ask, Do the wicked by their ingratitude make the ordinance of God fruitless and void? I answer that what I have said is not to be understood as if the power and truth of the sacrament depended on the condition or pleasure of him who receives it. That which God instituted continues firm and retains its nature, however men may vary. But since it is one thing to offer and another to receive, there is nothing to prevent a symbol consecrated by the word of the Lord from being truly what it is said to be and preserving its power, though it may at the same time confer no benefit on the wicked and ungodly. This question is well solved by Augustine in a few words. Quote, if you receive carnally, it ceases not to be spiritual, but it is not spiritual to you. Unquote. But as Augustine shows in the above passages that a sacrament is a thing of no value if separated from its truth, so also when the two are conjoined, he reminds us that it is necessary to distinguish in order that we may not cleave too much to the external sign. Quote, as it is servile weakness to follow the latter and take the signs for the thing signified, so to interpret the signs as of no use is an extravagant error. Unquote. He mentions two faults which are here to be avoided. The one when we receive the signs as if they had been given in vain, and by malignantly destroying or impairing their secret meanings prevent them from yielding any fruit. The other, when by not raising our minds beyond the visible sign, we attribute to it blessings which are conferred upon us by Christ alone, and that by means of the Holy Spirit, who makes us to be partakers of Christ, external signs assisting if they invite us to Christ, whereas when rested to any other purpose, their whole utility is overthrown. Section 17. Wherefore, let it be a fixed point that the office of the sacraments differs not from the word of God, and this is to hold forth and offer Christ to us, and in him the treasures of heavenly grace. They confer nothing, and avail nothing, if not received in faith, just as wine and oil, or any other liquor, however large the quantity which you pour out, will run away and perish unless there be an open vessel to receive it. When the vessel is not open, though it may be sprinkled all over, it will nevertheless remain entirely empty. We must be aware of being led into a kindred error by the terms somewhat too extravagant which ancient Christian writers have employed in extolling the dignity of the sacraments. We must not suppose that there is some latent virtue inherent in the sacraments by which they in themselves confer the gifts of the Holy Spirit upon us in the same way in which wine is drunk out of a cup, since the only office divinely assigned to them is to attest and ratify the benevolence of the Lord towards us and they avail no farther than accompanied by the Holy Spirit to open our minds and hearts, and to make us capable of receiving this testimony, in which various distinguished graces are clearly manifested. For the sacraments, as we lately observe in chapter 13, section 6, and 14, section 6 and 7, are to us what messengers of good news are to men, are earnest and ratifying passions. They do not of themselves bestow any grace, but they announce and manifest it and, like earnests and badges, give a ratification of the gifts which the divine liberality has bestowed upon us. 
The Holy Spirit, whom the sacraments do not bring promiscuously to all, but whom the Lord specially confers on his people, brings the gifts of God along with him, makes way for the sacraments, and causes them to bear fruit. But though we deny not that God, by the immediate agency of his Spirit, countenances his own ordinance, preventing the administration of the sacraments which he has instituted from being fruitless and vain, still we maintain that the internal grace of the Spirit, as it is distinct from the external ministration, ought to be viewed and considered separately. God, therefore, truly performs whatever he promises and figures by signs, nor are the signs without effect, for they prove that he is their true and faithful author. The only question here is whether the Lord works by proper and intrinsic virtue, as it is called, or resigns his office to external symbols. We maintain that whatever organs he employs detract nothing from his primary operation. In this doctrine of the sacraments, their dignity is highly extolled, their use plainly shown, their utility sufficiently proclaimed, and moderation in all things duly maintained, so that nothing is attributed to them which ought not to be attributed, and nothing denied them which they ought to possess. Meanwhile, we get rid of that fiction by which the cause of justification and the power of the Holy Spirit are included in elements as vessels and vehicles, and the special power which was overlooked is distinctly explained. Here also we ought to observe that what the minister figures and attests by outward action, God performs inwardly, lest that which God claims for himself alone should be ascribed to mortal man. This Augustine is careful to observe. Quote, How does both God and Moses sanctify? Not Moses for God, but Moses by visible sacraments through his ministry, God by invisible grace through the Holy Spirit. Herein is the whole fruit of visible sacraments. For what do these visible sacraments avail without that sanctification of invisible grace? Unquote. Section 18. The term sacrament, in the view we have hitherto taken of it, includes generally all the signs which God ever commanded men to use, that he might make them sure and confident of the truth of his promises. These he was pleased sometimes to place in natural objects, sometimes to exhibit in miracles. Of the former class we have an example, in his giving the tree of life to Adam and Eve, as an earnest of immortality that they might feel confident of the promise as often as they ate of the fruit. Another example was when he gave the bow and the cloud to Noah and his posterity as a memorial that he would not again destroy the earth by a flood. These were to Adam and Noah as sacraments. Not that the tree could give Adam and Eve the immortality which it could not give to itself, or the bow, which is only a reflection of the solar rays on the opposite clouds, could have the effect of confining the waters. But they had a mark engraven on them by the word of God to be proofs and seals of his covenant. The tree was previously a tree, and the bow a bow. But when they were inscribed with the word of God, a new form was given to them. They began to be what they previously were not. Lest anyone suppose that these things were said in vain, the bow is even in the present day a witness to us of the covenant which God made with Noah. As often as we look upon it, we read this promise from God, that the earth will never be destroyed by a flood. Wherefore, if any philosopher to deride the simplicity of our faith shall contend that the variety of colors arises naturally from the rays reflected by the opposite cloud, let us admit the fact, but at the same time deride his stupidity in not recognizing God as the Lord and Governor of nature, who at his pleasure makes all the elements subservient to his glory. If he had impressed memorials of this description on the sun, the stars, the earth, and stones, they would all have been to us as sacraments. For why is the shapeless and the coin to silver not of the same value, saying they are the same metal? 
just because the former has nothing but its own nature, whereas the latter, impressed with the public stamp, becomes money and receives a new value. And shall the Lord not be able to stamp his creatures with his word, that things which were formerly bare elements may become sacraments? Examples of the second class were given when he showed light to Abraham in the smoking furnace. Genesis 15, verse 17, when he covered the fleece with dew while the ground was dry, and, on the other hand, when the dew covered the ground while the fleece was untouched, to assure Gideon of victory. Judges 6, verse 37. Also, when he made the shadow to go back ten degrees on the dial, to assure Hezekiah of his recovery. 2 Kings 20, verse 9, and Isaiah 38, verse 7. These things which were done to assist and establish their faith were also sacraments. Section 19. But my present purpose is to discourse especially of those sacraments which the Lord has been pleased to institute as ordinary sacraments in his church, to bring up his worshippers and servants in one faith and the confession of one faith. For, to use the words of Augustine, quote, In no name of religion, true or false, can men be assembled unless united by some common use of visible signs or sacraments, unquote. Our most merciful Father, foreseeing this necessity from the very first, appointed certain exercises of piety to his servants. These, Satan, by afterwards transferring to impious and superstitious worship, in many ways corrupted and depraved. Hence those initiations of the Gentiles into their mysteries and other degenerate rites. Yet, although they were full of error and superstition, they were at the same time an indication that men could not be without such external signs of religion. But as they were neither founded on the word of God, nor bore reference to that truth which ought to be held forth by all signs, they are unworthy of being named when mention is made of the sacred symbols which were instituted by God and have not been perverted from their end, these to be held to true piety. And they consist not of simple signs like the rainbow and the tree of life, but of ceremonies, or, if you prefer it, the signs here employed are ceremonies. But since, as has been said above, they are testimonies of grace and salvation from the Lord, so, in regard to us, they are marks of profession by which we openly swear by the name of God, binding ourselves to be faithful to Him. Hence, Chrysostom somewhere truly gives them the name of Paptions, by which God enters into covenant with us, and we become bound to holiness and purity of life, because a mutual stipulation is here interposed between God and us. For as God there promises to cover and deface any guilt and penalty which we may have incurred by transgression, and reconciles us to himself and his only begotten Son, so we in our turn oblige ourselves by this profession to the study of piety and righteousness. And hence it may be justly said that such sacraments are ceremonies by which God is pleased to train his people, first, to excite, cherish, and strengthen faith within, and secondly, to testify our religion to men. Section 20. Now these have been different at different times according to the dispensation which the Lord has seen me to employ in manifesting himself to men. Circumcision was enjoined on Abraham and his posterity, and to it were afterwards added purifications and sacrifices and other rites of the Mosaic law. These were the sacraments of the Jews even until the advent of Christ. After these were abrogated, the two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which the Christian church now employs, were instituted. I speak of those which were instituted for the use of the whole church, for the laying on of hands, by which the ministers of the church are initiated into their office, though I have no objection to its being called a sacrament, I do not number among ordinary sacraments. The place to be assigned to the other commonly reputed sacraments we shall see by and by. Still, the ancient sacraments had the same end in view as our own, these 
to direct and almost lead us by the hand to Christ, or rather were like images to represent him and hold him forth to our knowledge. But as we have already shown that sacraments are a kind of seals of the promises of God, so let us hold it as a most certain truth that no divine promise has ever been offered to man except in Christ, and that hence, when they remind us of any divine promise, they must of necessity exhibit Christ. Hence that heavenly pattern of the tabernacle and legal worship which was shown to Moses in the mount. There is only this difference, that while the former shadowed forth a promised Christ, while he was still expected, the latter bear testimony to him as already come and manifested. Section 21. When these things are explained singly and separately, they will be much clearer. Circumcision was a sign by which the Jews were reminded that whatever comes of the seed of man, in other words, the whole nature of man, is corrupt and requires to be cut off. Moreover, it was a proof and memorial to confirm them in the promise made to Abraham of a seed in whom all the nations of the earth should be blessed and from whom they themselves were to look for a blessing. That saving seed, as we are taught by Paul, Galatians 5, verse 16, was Christ, in whom alone they trusted to recover what they had lost in Adam. Wherefore, circumcision was to them what Paul says it was to Abraham, these, a sign of the righteousness of faith, Romans 4, verse 11, these, a seal by which they were more certainly assured that their faith in waiting for the Lord would be accepted by God for righteousness. But we shall have a better opportunity elsewhere, see chapter 16, sections 3 and 4, of following out the comparison between circumcision and baptism. Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 14, and 1 John 1, verse 7, and Revelation 1, verse 5, and Hebrews 4, verse 14, and 5, verse 5, and 9, verse 11. Their washings and purifications placed under their eye the uncleanness, defilement, and pollution with which they were naturally contaminated, and promised another labor in which all their impurities might be wiped and washed away. This labor was Christ, washed by whose blood we bring his purity into the sight of God, that he may cover all our defilements. The sacrifices convicted them of their unrighteousness, and at the same time taught that there was a necessity for paying some satisfaction to the justice of God and that therefore there must be some high priest, some mediator between God and man, to satisfy God by the shedding of blood and the immolation of a victim which might suffice for the remission of sins. The high priest was Christ. He shed his own blood. He was himself the victim. For in obedience to the Father he offered himself to death, and by this obedience abolished the disobedience by which man had provoked the indignation of God. Philippians 2 verse 8 and Romans 5 verse 19 Section 22. In regard to our sacraments that present Christ the more clearly to us, the more familiarly he has been manifested to man ever since he was exhibited by the Father, truly as he had been promised. For baptism testifies that we are washed and purified, the supper of the Eucharist that we are redeemed. Ablution is figured by water, satisfaction by blood. Both are found in Christ, who, as John says, quote, came by water and blood, unquote that is, to purify and redeem. Of this, the Spirit of God also is a witness. Nay, there are three witnesses in one, water, spirit, and blood. In the water and the blood, we have an evidence of purification and redemption, but the Spirit is the primary witness who gives us a full assurance of this testimony. This sublime mystery was illustriously displayed on the cross of Christ, when water and blood flowed from his sacred side. John 19, verse 34 which, for this reason, Augustine justly termed the fountain of our sacraments. Of these we shall shortly treat at greater length. 
There is no doubt that if you compare time with time, the grace of the Spirit is now more abundantly displayed, for this forms part of the glory of the kingdom of Christ, as we gather from several passages, and especially from the seventh chapter of John. In this sense are we to understand the words of Paul, that the law was, quote, a shadow of good things to come, but the body is of Christ, unquote. Colossians 2, verse 17. His purpose is not to declare the inefficacy of those manifestations of grace in which God was pleased to prove his truth to the patriarchs, just as he proves it to us in the present day in baptism and the Lord's Supper, but to contrast the two and show the great value of what is given to us, that no one may think it strange that by the advent of Christ the ceremonies of the law have been abolished. Section 23. The scholastic dogma, to glance at it in passing, by which the difference between the sacraments of the old and the new dispensation is made so great that the former did nothing but shadow forth the grace of God, while the latter actually conferred at it, must be altogether exploded, since the apostle speaks in no higher terms of the one than of the other when he says that the fathers ate of the same spiritual food and explains that that food was Christ, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 3, who will presume to regard as an empty sign that which gave a manifestation to the Jews of true communion with Christ, and the state of the case which the apostle is there treating militates strongly for our view, for to guard against confiding in a frigid knowledge of Christ, an empty title of Christianity and external observances, and thereby daring to contemn the judgment of God, he exhibits signal examples of divine severity in the Jews to make us aware that if we indulge in the same vices, the same punishments which they suffered are impending over us. Now, to make the comparison appropriate, it was necessary to show that there is no inequality between us and them and those blessings in which he forbade us to glory. Therefore, he first makes them equal to us in the sacraments, and leaves us not one iota of privilege which could give us hopes of impunity. Nor can we justly attribute more to our baptism than he elsewhere attributes to circumcision, when he terms it a seal of the righteousness of faith. Romans 4, verse 11. Whatever, therefore, is now exhibited to us in the sacraments the Jews formerly received in theirs, these, Christ, with his spiritual riches, the same efficacy which ours possess, they experienced in theirs, these, that they were seals of the divine favor toward them in regard to the hope of eternal salvation. Had the objectors been sound expounders of the epistle to the Hebrews, they would not have been so deluded, but reading therein that sins were not expiated by legal ceremonies, nay, that the ancient shadows were of no importance to justification, they overlooked the contrast which is there drawn, and fastening on the single point that the law in itself was of no avail to the worshipper, thought that they were mere figures, devoid of truth. The purpose of the apostle is to show that there is nothing in the ceremonial law until we arrive at Christ, on whom alone the whole efficacy depends. Section 24. But they will found on what Paul says of the circumcision of the letter. Romans 2, verses 25-29, through 29, and 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19, and Galatians 6, verse 15, and 1 Corinthians 10, verse 5, and 1 Peter 3, verse 21, and Colossians 2, verse 11 and object that it is in no esteem with God, that it confers nothing, is empty, that passages such as these seem to set it far beneath our baptism. But by no means, for the very same thing might justly be said of baptism. Indeed, it is said, first by Paul himself when he shows that God regards not the external ablution by which we are initiated into religion unless the mind is purified inwardly, and maintains its purity to the end, and secondly, by Peter, when he declares that the reality of baptism consists not in external ablution, but in the testimony of a good conscience. 
but it seems that in another passage he speaks with the greatest contempt of circumcision made with hands, when he contrasts it with the circumcision made by Christ. I answer that not even in that passage is there anything derogatory to its dignity. Paul is there disputing against those who insisted upon it as necessary after it had been abrogated. He therefore admonishes believers to lay aside ancient shadows and cleave to truth. These teachers, he says, insist that your body shall be circumcised, but you have been spiritually circumcised both in soul and body. You have therefore a manifestation of the reality, and this is far better than the shadow. Still, anyone might have answered that the figure was not to be despised because they had the reality, since among the fathers also was exemplified that putting off of the old man of which he was speaking, and yet to them, external circumcision was not superfluous. This objection he anticipates when he immediately adds that the Colossians were buried together with Christ by baptism, thereby intimating that baptism is now to Christians what circumcision was to those of ancient times that the latter, therefore, could not be imposed on Christians without injury to the former. Section 25. But there is more difficulty in explaining the passage which follows, and which I lately quoted, these, that all the Jewish ceremonies were shadows of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Colossians 2, verse 17. The most difficult point of all, however, is that which is discussed in several chapters of the Epistle to the Hebrews, namely, that the blood of beasts did not reach to the conscience that the law was a shadow of good things to come, but not the very image of the things. Hebrews 10, verse 1. That worshippers under the Mosaic ceremonies obtained no degree of perfection, and so forth. I repeat what I have already hinted, that Paul does not represent the ceremonies as shadowy because they had nothing solid in them, but because their completion was in a manner suspended until the manifestation of Christ. Again, I hold that the words are to be understood not of their efficiency, but rather of the mode of significancy. For until Christ was manifested in the flesh, all signs shadowed him as absent. However, he might inwardly exert the presence of his power, and consequently of his person, on believers. But the most important observation is that in all these passages Paul does not speak simply, but by way of reply. He was contending with false apostles, who maintained that piety consisted in mere ceremonies without any respect to Christ. For their reputation it was sufficient merely to consider what effect ceremonies have in themselves. This, too, was the scope of the author of the epistle to the Hebrews. Let us remember, therefore, that he is here treating of ceremonies not taken in their true and native signification, but when wrested to a false and vicious interpretation, not of the legitimate use, but of the superstitious abuse of them. What wonder, then, if ceremonies, when separated from Christ, are devoid of all virtue. All signs become null when the thing signified is taken away. Thus Christ, when addressing those who thought that manna was nothing more than food for the body, accommodates his language to their gross opinion, and says that he furnished a better food, one which fed souls for immortality. But if you require a clearer solution, the substance comes to this. First, the whole apparatus of ceremonies under the Mosaic Law, and thus directed to Christ, is evanescent and null. Secondly, these ceremonies had such respect to Christ that they had their fulfillment only when Christ was manifested in the flesh. Lastly, at his advent, they behoved to disappear just as the shadow vanishes in the clear light of the sun. But I now touch more briefly on the point, because I defer the future consideration of it till I come to the place where I intend to compare baptism with circumcision. Section 26. Those wretched sophists are perhaps deceived by the extravagant eulogiums on the signs which appear in ancient writers. For instance, the following passage of Augustine, 
Quote, the sacraments of the old law only promised a Savior, whereas ours give salvation. Unquote. Not perceiving that these and similar figures of speech are hyperbolical, they too have promulgated their hyperbolical dogmas, but in a sense altogether alien from that of ancient writers. For Augustine means nothing more than in another place where he says, Quote, the sacraments of the Mosaic law foretold Christ. Ours announce him. Unquote. And again, Quote, those were promises of things to be fulfilled, these indications of the fulfillment, unquote. as if he had said, those figured him when he was still expected, ours now that he has arrived exhibit him as present. Moreover, with regard to the mode of signifying, he says, as he also elsewhere indicates, quote, the law and the prophets had sacraments foretelling a thing future. The sacraments of our time attest that what they foretold as to come has come, unquote. His sentiments concerning the reality and efficacy he explains in several passages, as when he says, quote, The sacraments of the Jews were different in the signs, alike in the things signified, different in the visible appearance, alike in spiritual power. Unquote. Again, quote, In different signs there was the same faith. It was thus in different signs as in different words, because the words changed the sound according to times, and yet words are nothing else than signs. The fathers drank of the same spiritual drink, but not of the same corporeal drink. See then how, while faith remains, signs vary. There the rock was Christ. To us that is Christ, which is placed on the altar. They, as a great sacrament, drank of the water flowing from the rock. Believers know what we drink. If you look at the visible appearance, there was a difference. If at the intelligible signification, they drank of the same spiritual drink. Unquote. Again, Quote, in this mystery their food and drink are the same as ours, the same in meaning, not in form, for the same Christ was figured to them in the rock. To us he has been manifested in the flesh, unquote, in Psalm 77. Though we grant that in this respect also there is some difference. Both testify that the paternal kindness of God and the graces of the Spirit are offered us in Christ, but ours more clearly and splendidly. In both there is an exhibition of Christ, but in ours it is more full and complete, in accordance with that distinction between the Old and New Testaments of which we have discoursed above. And this is the meaning of Augustine, whom we quote more frequently as being the best and most faithful witness of all antiquity, where he says that after Christ was revealed, sacraments were instituted fewer in number, but of more august significancy and more excellent power. It is here proper to remind the reader that all the trifling talk of the sophists concerning the opus operatum is not only false, but repugnant to the very nature of sacraments which God appointed in order that believers, who are void and in want of all good, might bring nothing of their own, but simply beg. Hence it follows, that in receiving them they do nothing which deserves praise, and that in this action, which in respect of them is merely passive, no work can be ascribed to them. Chapter 15 of Baptism There are 22 sections. Section 1 Baptism is the initiatory sign by which we are admitted to the fellowship of the Church, that being engrafted into Christ, we may be accounted children of God. Moreover, the end for which God has given it, this I have shown to be common to all mysteries, is, first, that it may be conducive to our faith in Him, and secondly, that it may serve the purpose of a confession among men. The nature of both institutions we shall explain in order. Baptism contributes to our faith three things, which require to be treated separately. 
The first object, therefore, for which it is appointed by the Lord, is to be a sign and evidence of our purification, or, better to explain my meaning, it is a kind of sealed instrument by which he assures us that all our sins are so deleted, covered, and defaced, that they will never come into his sight, never be mentioned, never imputed. For it is his will that all who have believed be baptized for the remission of sins. Hence those who have thought that baptism is nothing else than the badge and mark by which we profess our religion before men, in the same way as soldiers attest their profession by bearing the insignia of their commander, having not attended to what was the principal thing in baptism. And this is, that we are to receive it in connection with the promise. Quote, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Unquote. Mark 16, verse 16. Section 2. In this sense is to be understood the statement of Paul that, quote, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, unquote. Ephesians 5, verses 25 and 26. And again, quote, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, unquote. Titus 3, verse 5. Peter also says that, quote, baptism also doth now save us, unquote. 1 Peter 3, verse 21. For he did not mean to intimate that our ablution and salvation are perfected by water, or that water possesses in itself the virtue of purifying, regenerating, and renewing. Nor does he mean that it is the cause of salvation, but only that the knowledge and certainty of such gifts are perceived in this sacrament. This the words themselves evidently show. For Paul connects together the word of life and baptism of water, as if he had said, by the gospel the message of our ablution and sanctification is announced. By baptism, this message is sealed. And Peter immediately subjoins that that baptism is, quote, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, which is of faith, unquote. Nay, the only purification which baptism promises is by means of the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, who is figured by water from the resemblance to cleansing and washing. Who then can say that we are cleansed by that water which certainly attests that the blood of Christ is our true and only labor? so that we cannot have a better argument to refute the hallucination of those who ascribe the whole to the virtue of water than we derive from the very meaning of baptism, which leads us away as well from the visible element, which is presented to our eye as from all other means, that it may fix our minds on Christ alone. Section 3. Nor is it to be supposed that baptism is bestowed only with reference to the past so that in regard to new lapses into which we fall after baptism, we must seek new remedies of expiation in other so-called sacraments, just as if the power of baptism had become obsolete. To this error, in ancient times it was only that some refused to be initiated by baptism until their life was in extreme danger, and they were drawing their last breath, that they might thus obtain pardon for all the past. Against this preposterous precaution, ancient bishops frequently inveigh in their writings, we ought to consider that at whatever time we are baptized, we are washed and purified once for the whole of life. Wherefore, as often as we fall, we must recall the remembrance of our baptism, and thus fortify our minds, so as to feel certain and secure of the remission of sins. For though, when once administered, it seems to have passed, it is not abolished by subsequent sins. For the purity of Christ was there and offered to us, always is in force, and is not destroyed by any stain. It wipes and washes away all our defilements. Nor must we hence assume a license of sinning for the future. There is certainly nothing in it to countenance such audacity. But this doctrine is intended only for those who, when they have sinned, 
grown under their sins, burdened and oppressed, that they may have wherewith to support and console themselves and not rush headlong into despair. Thus Paul says that Christ has made a propitiation for us for the remission of sins that are past. Romans 3, verse 25. By this he denies not that constant and perpetual forgiveness of sins is thereby obtained even till death. He only intimates that it is designed by the Father for those poor sinners who, wounded by remorse of conscience, sigh for the physician. To these the mercy of God is offered. Those who, from hopes of impunity, seek a license for sin, only provoke the wrath and justice of God. Section 4. I know it is a common belief that forgiveness, which at our first regeneration we receive by baptism alone, is after baptism procured by means of penitence and the keys. See chapter 19, section 17. But those who entertain this fiction err from not considering that the power of the keys of which they speak so depends on baptism that it ought not on any account to be separated from it. The sinner receives forgiveness by the ministry of the church, in other words, not without the preaching of the gospel. And of what nature is this preaching? That we are washed from our sins by the blood of Christ. And what is the sign and evidence of that washing if it be not baptism? We see then that that forgiveness has reference to baptism. This error had its origin in the fictitious sacrament of penance, on which I have already touched. What remains will be said at the proper place. There is no wonder if men who, from the grossness of their minds, are excessively attached to external things, have here also betrayed the defect. If not contented with the pure institution of God, they have introduced new helps devised by themselves, as if baptism were not itself a sacrament of penance. But if repentance is recommended during the whole of life, the power of baptism ought to have the same extent. Wherefore, there can be no doubt that all the godly may, during the whole course of their lives, whenever they are vexed by a consciousness of their sins, recall the remembrance of their baptism, that they may thereby assure themselves of that soul and perpetual ablution which we have in the blood of Christ. Section 5. Another benefit of baptism is that it shows us our mortification in Christ and new life in Him. Quote, know ye not, unquote, says the Apostle, quote, that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, unquote, that we, quote, should walk in newness of life, unquote. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. By these words he not only exhorts us to imitation of Christ, as if he had said that we are admonished by baptism in like manner as Christ died, to die to our lusts, and as he rose, to rise to righteousness. But he traces the matter much higher, that Christ, by baptism, has made us partakers of his death, engrafting us into it. And as the twig derives substance and nourishment from the root to which it is attached, so those who receive baptism with true faith truly feel the efficacy of Christ's death in the mortification of their flesh, and the efficacy of his resurrection in the quickening of the spirit. On this he founds his exhortation that if we are Christians, we should be dead unto sin, and alive unto righteousness. He elsewhere uses the same argument, viz., that we are circumcised, and put off the whole man, after we are buried in Christ by baptism. Colossians 2, verse 12. And in this sense, in the passage which we formerly quoted, he calls it, quote, the washing of regeneration, and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, unquote. Titus 3, verse 5. We are promised, first, the free pardon of sins, and imputation of righteousness and, secondly, the grace of the Holy Spirit to form us again to newness of life. Section 6. The last advantage which our faith receives from baptism is, it's assuring us not only that we are engrafted into the death and life of Christ, but so united to Christ himself as to be partakers of all his blessings. 
for he consecrated and sanctified baptism in his own body, that he might have it in common with us as the firmest bond of union and fellowship which he deigned to form with us. And hence Paul proves us to be the sons of God from the fact that we put on Christ in baptism. Galatians 3, verse 27. Thus we see the fulfillment of our baptism in Christ, whom for this reason we call the proper object of baptism. Hence it is not strange that the apostles are said to have baptized in the name of Christ, though they were enjoined to baptize in the name of the Father and Spirit also. Acts 8, verse 16, and 19, verse 5, and Matthew 28, verse 19. For all the divine gifts held forth in baptism are found in Christ alone. And yet he who baptizes into Christ cannot but at the same time invoke the name of the Father and the Spirit. For we are cleansed by his blood, just because our gracious Father of his incomparable mercy, willing to receive us into favor, appointed him mediator to effect our reconciliation with himself. Regeneration we obtain from his death and resurrection only. When sanctified by his Spirit, we are imbued with a new and spiritual nature. Wherefore we obtain, and in a manner distinctly perceive, in the Father the cause, in the Son the matter, and in the Spirit the effect of our purification and regeneration. Thus first John baptized, and thus afterwards the apostles by the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, understanding by the term repentance, regeneration, and by the remission of sins, ablution. Section 7. This makes it perfectly certain that the ministry of John was the very same as that which was afterwards delegated to the apostles. For the different hands by which baptism is administered do not make it a different baptism, but sameness of doctrine proves it to be the same. John and the apostles agreed in one doctrine, both baptized unto repentance, both for remission of sins, both in the name of Christ, from whom repentance and remission of sins proceed. John pointed to him as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. John 1 verse 29, thus describing him as the victim accepted of the Father, the propitiation of righteousness, and the author of salvation. What could the apostles add to this confession? Wherefore, let no one be perplexed because ancient writers labor to distinguish the one from the other. Their views ought not to be in such esteem with us as to shake the certainty of Scripture. Or who would listen to Chrysostom denying that remission of sins was included in the baptism of John, rather than to Luke asserting, on the contrary, that John preached, quote, the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, unquote. Luke 3, verse 3. Nor can we admit Augustine's subtlety, that by the baptism of John sins were forgiven in hope, but by the baptism of Christ are forgiven in reality. For seeing the evangelist clearly declares that John in his baptism promised the remission of sins, why detract from this eulogium when no necessity compels it? Should anyone ask what difference the word of God makes, he will find it to be nothing more than that John baptized in the name of him who was to come, the apostles in the name of him who was already manifested. Luke 3, verse 16, and Acts 19, verse 4. Section 8. This fact that the gifts of the Spirit were more liberally poured out after the resurrection of Christ does not go to establish the diversity of baptisms. For baptism administered by the apostles while he was still on the earth was called his baptism. And yet the Spirit was not poured out in larger abundance on it than on the baptism of John. Nay, not even after the ascension did the Samaritans receive the Spirit above the ordinary measure of former believers, till Peter and John were sent to lay hands on them. Acts 8, verses 14 through 17. I imagine that the thing which imposed on ancient writers and made them say that the one baptism was only a preparative to the other was because they read that those who had received the baptism of John were again baptized by Paul. Acts 19, verses 3-5, through 5, 
and Matthew 3, verse 11. How greatly they are mistaken in this will be most clearly explained in his own place. Why then did John say that he baptized with water, but there was one coming who would baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire? This may be explained in a few words. He did not mean to distinguish the one baptism from the other, but he contrasted his own person with the person of Christ, saying that while he was a minister of water, Christ was the giver of the Holy Spirit, and would declare this virtue by a visible miracle on the day on which he would send the Holy Spirit on the apostles under the form of tongues of fire. What greater boast could the apostles make, and what greater those who baptize in the present day? For they are only ministers of the external sign, whereas Christ is the author of internal grace, as those same ancient writers uniformly teach, and in particular Augustine, who, in his refutation of the Donatists, founds chiefly on this axiom, Whoever it is that baptizes, Christ alone presides. Section 9 the things which we have said, both of mortification and ablution, were adumbrated among the people of Israel, who, for that reason, are described by the apostle as having been baptized in the cloud and in the sea. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. Mortification was figured when the Lord, vindicating them from the hand of Pharaoh and from cruel bondage, paved a way for them through the Red Sea and drowned Pharaoh himself and their Egyptian foes, who were pressing close behind and threatening them with destruction. For in this way also he promises us in baptism and shows by a given sign that we are led by his might and delivered from the captivity of Egypt, that is, from the bondage of sin, that our Pharaoh is drowned. In other words, the devil, although he ceases not to try and harass us. But as that Egyptian was not plunged into the depth of the sea, but cast down upon the shore, still alarmed the Israelites by the terror of his look, though he could not hurt them, so our enemy still threatens, shows his arms and his felt, but cannot conquer. The cloud was a symbol of purification. Numbers 9, verse 18. Whereas the Lord then covered them by an opposite cloud and kept them cool, that they might not faint or pine away under the burning rays of the sun, so in baptism we perceive that we are covered and protected by the blood of Christ, lest the wrath of God, which is truly an intolerable flame, should lie upon us. Although the mystery was then obscure and known to few, yet, as there is no other method of obtaining salvation than in those two graces, God was pleased that the ancient fathers whom he had adopted as heirs should be furnished with both badges. Section 10. It is now clear how false the doctrine is, which some long ago taught and others still persist in, that by baptism we are exempted and set free from original sin and from the corruption which was propagated by Adam to all his posterity, and that we are restored to the same righteousness and purity of nature which Adam would have had if he had maintained the integrity in which he was created. This class of teachers never understand what is meant by original sin, original righteousness, or the grace of baptism. Now it has been previously shown, Book 2, Chapter 1, Section 8, that original sin is the depravity and corruption of our nature, which first makes us liable to the wrath of God and then produces in us works which Scripture terms the works of the flesh. Galatians 5, verse 19. The two things, therefore, must be distinctly observed, viz., that we are vitiated and perverted in all parts of our nature, and then, on account of this corruption, are justly held to be condemned and convicted before God, to whom nothing is acceptable but purity, innocence, and righteousness. And hence, even infants bring their condemnation with them from their mother's womb. For although they have not yet brought forth the fruits of their unrighteousness, they have its seed included in them. Nay, their whole nature is, as it were, a seed of sin, and therefore cannot but be odious and abominable to God. 
believers become assured by baptism that this condemnation is entirely withdrawn from them, since, as has been said, the Lord by this sign promises that a full and entire remission has been made, both of the guilt which was imputed to us and the penalty incurred by the guilt. They also apprehend righteousness, but such righteousness as the people of God can obtain in this life, these, by imputation only, God in his mercy, regarding them as righteous and innocent. Section 11. Another point is that this corruption never ceases in us, but constantly produces new fruits, these, those works of the flesh which we previously described, just as a burning furnace perpetually sends forth flame and sparks, or a fountain is ever pouring out water. For concupiscence never wholly dies or is extinguished in men until, freed by death from the body of death, they have altogether laid aside their own nature. Book 3, Chapter 3, Sections 10 through 13. Baptism indeed tells us that our Pharaoh is drowned in sin mortified. Not so, however, as no longer to exist or give no trouble, but only so as not to have dominion. For as long as we live shut up in this prison of the body, the remains of sin dwell in us. But if we faithfully hold the promise which God has given us in baptism, they will neither rule nor reign. But let no man deceive himself, let no man look complacently on his disease when he hears that sin always dwells in us. When we say so, it is not in order that those who are otherwise too prone to sin may sleep securely in their sins, but only that those who are tried and stung by the flesh may not faint and despond. Let them rather reflect that they are still on the way and think that they have made great progress when they feel that their concupiscence is somewhat diminished from day to day until they shall have reached the point at which they aim, these, the final death of the flesh, a death which shall be completed at the termination of this mortal life. Meanwhile, let them cease not to contend strenuously and animate themselves to further progress and to press on to complete victory. Their efforts should be stimulated by the consideration that after a lengthened struggle, much still remains to be done. We ought to hold that we are baptized for the mortification of our flesh, which has begun in baptism, is prosecuted every day, and will be finished when we depart from this life to go to the Lord. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent out your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. 
Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.